Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you're very welcome to The Tonight Show. Shock and Fine Gael as former Housing Minister Owen Murphy resigns. Irish Examiner Deputy Political Editor Elaine Lachlan will be bringing us her analysis. UCC Professor Liam Fanning joins us as further changes to the vaccine rollout programme are made by NIAC and the government. Minister of State with responsibility for international and road transport and logistics Hildegard Nocton and People Before Profit TD Paul Murphy will be live in studio for their reactions. The long road to recovery. Fine Gael MEP Maria Walsh on living with long COVID. And Professor Jack Lambert and why so many people are still feeling the impact of the disease. And later, final flight. Joe Walsh Tours closes down after 60 years in business. We get reaction from IBEX Danny McCoy and broadcaster and journalist Sinead Ryan will join us to discuss the future of the tourism industry. Do get in touch on Twitter, our hashtag tonight. VMTV. Joining me now to discuss the resignation of former Housing Minister and Fine Gael TD Owen Murphy is Irish Examiner, Deputy Political Editor Elaine Lachlan. Elaine, you're very welcome to the programme. I mean, he has kept, I think it's fair to say, a low profile, a low media profile since the election last year when he didn't take up another cabinet post. But was it widely known that he was unhappy, it appears, in politics? Yes, well, while the timing of his resignation or decision to leave politics is a, a bit of a shock, it wasn't a great surprise. Um, Owen Murphy was one of a number of Fine Gael ministers who was demoted to the back benches after Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Green Party went into government last year. Um, he's a former housing minister, so would have had a really senior role in the last cabinet and was a former a junior finance minister as well. Again, a significant portfolio in the junior ranks to have. He was on the back benches. He, he was making some contributions, especially around the COVID vaccine rollout um, and also working on the rebuilding of the Fine Gael party. But it was widely known that he wasn't exactly uh, happy uh, to be languishing on the back benches with some of his colleagues. And he has made that decision now to leave politics for a career in what he describes as international relations. Um, Even though he told Claire Byrne today on radio, didn't he, that he had gone to Leo Fradker and said he wanted a break from the cabinet? Yes, he did say that in a radio interview this morning, but we also know that he did go to the Thonishta and Thonishta Leo Varadkar would be a very close ally of his and a close confidant mm. of Owen Murphy. So it'll be quite the disappointment for Leo Varadkar to have 
one of his loyal supporters leave government. But he did go to Leo Varadkar. He said he wanted to leave. He needed this break from politics. And from what we believe, Leo Varadkar had asked him to maybe reconsider that decision. Um, but he did take that period of time from the new year till now and finally decided that in, in his own words, that it wouldn't be right to take what is a generous TD salary, knowing that he would not be contesting any general election or any further election. It and wouldn't be fair on the electors. Speaking of elections, this obviously triggers the first by-election of this government in Dublin Bay South, and it's going to be a blockbuster. It's pretty fascinating so far. So let's look at two of the potential front runners: Kate O'Connell for Fine Gael and potentially Hazel Chu for the Greens. Social Democrats, independent, who knows, neither of those two um, politicians or former politicians are exactly flavour of their month with their party leaders, are they? Exactly, exactly. And both would have to, both if they decide to run as candidates now, we haven't heard anything from them today. The only candidate that has put her name forward is Ivana Batchik of the Labour Party, and she would be a serious contender as well. Uh, we have to remember that this was once a Labour seat, or there was once a Labour seat in this constituency. So she certainly will be in with a chance and will have high hopes for that seat. But yes, as you said, Kate O'Connell, uh, was a TD in the last all alongside Owen Murphy in that constituency. She lost her seat in the last general election and she will be, you'd imagine, hoping to win that uh, that that nomination from within the Fine Gael party. Now, there are a number of councillors in the area as well who may want to fill that vacancy. Um, and as we know, she is not loved by all in those, uh, all members of Fine Gael. She was a controversial, outspoken TD in the last all and made her mind known on various issues. Likewise, Hazel Chu put some noses out of joint recently when she decided to run in the Shannad by-election as an independent candidate. She is the party's chairperson and current Dublin Lord Mayor. She's an extremely high-profile um, politician, albeit a local politician, but I think she would be nationally known at this stage. Um, but it is Eamon Ryan's constituency. Um, so often those within your party are your greatest rivals. So it'll be interesting to see who the Green Party select and put forward in that constituency. There are two other female uh, yeah. councillors from the Green Party in that constituency also. So they might want to see their names put forward right. and it was interesting today um when uh, the, the deputy leader Catherine Martin was asked about this she didn't say whether she would be uh supportive of Hazel Chu putting her, her name in the race but she did say she would like to see a woman elected in the Dublin Bay South constituency. All right we're going to have to leave it there but Elaine Lachlan thank you for your time this evening now here in studio I'm joined by Minister of State with responsibility for international and road transport and logistics Hildegard Nocton and people before Profit TD Paul Murphy you're both very welcome to the programme. Um, did Owen Murphy's resignation from political life come as a surprise to you or did people know it was coming down the line, that he wasn't happy? Well, it certainly came as a surprise to me this morning when I heard it. And I suppose, first of all, I want to wish Owen well. I think he has served the country very well um, in, in what was a difficult 
um, a few years in, in the last uh, doll. Um, and yeah, it, it did come as a surprise to me. Um, I, but I, I wish him well. It's, it's not an easy decision to make to step away from politics. Um, but I have no doubt that he'll have an impact on whatever he does in the future. He is the second TD from Fine Gael to resign, including Michael Darcy, two pretty loyal allies uh, of Leo Varadkar's around the time. I think there are some questions now being asked about his leadership of the party and uh, certainly plenty of rumours in Leinster House that there are other politicians in the wings looking to take over. Absolutely not. Um, Leo Varadkar is uh, the leader of Fine Gael and Thánaiste doing really important work and I think we're all, all three parties in government are really making a concerted effort to navigate through the COVID pandemic as we're doing and coming out of it with the rollout of the vaccine programme and that is all our focus and it's certainly not on anything else in relation to leadership. It's really not the time for that now. We have to focus on the important issues of getting people back to work during a global pandemic and um, focusing on all the other issues that have been maybe laying in the background over the last 12 months. Uh, all the other issues, one of the issues that is going to come before the Fine Gael Party now is who to put on the ticket for this uh, by-election. Um, would you support a woman on the ticket? Is that uh, Kate O'Connell for you? Well, I think we definitely need more women in politics and I worked with Kate. She's a, a good, a fantastic former colleague, unfortunately, of mine in the last doll and has done really, you know, stellar work um, as a, a national politician. And I've no doubt, I don't think anyone has any doubt in her ability, um, but it will be a matter of, for the Fine Gael members within Dublin Bay South. They'll have to hold their own uh, selection convention there and it'll be a matter for them. And I don't know if she's even interested. I haven't spoken to her since and I'm sure there are many others who will want to put their name forward and Fine Gael are very lucky we have a, a large talent pool out there in relation uh, to people who may be um, interested but in putting their names forward. You have no difficulty given some of her recent criticism of Leo Varadkar if she is indeed the candidate. Kate has always been outspoken and I think um, you know there's I think respect for people who um, air their views but as I say um, it's not going to be a matter for me to decide who goes on that ticket it will be a matter for the members in the constituency of Dublin Bay South and as I say we have a large talent pool thankfully within the party who may also want to put their names forward. Uh, Paul Murphy we've spoken about Kate O'Connell for Fine Gael maybe Hazel Chew for is it the Greens we hear the Taoiseach saying this evening that Fianna Fáil will be contesting as well they will put um, a candidate forward who are you going to put forward? Um, we're going to put forward a strong candidate. Um, we have a selection process which will get underway in the next couple of weeks in the constituency um, and we'll be contesting as people before profit. Um, and a point I would make is that like, there's a lot of discussion about this being a very affluent constituency, um, but it's actually an area which does have you know, pockets of significant affluence, no question uh, about it. But it also has big working class uh, communities, high levels of deprivation, high levels of inequality. And I mean, I was first elected at a by-election and by-elections are kind of unique things and can become a referendum on the government. And I think two things in particular will be at play here. Um, one is the question of housing. I mean, Owen Murphy's legacy is intertwined with that of Fine Gael and continued by Fianna Fáil, and that is of getting 10,000 people homeless in this country, 3,000 children, the images of children you know, eating, sitting on cardboard boxes on the streets, rents completely out of control, 
half a million young people unable to leave their, their homes, all while corporate landlords became incredibly rich off those policies. So housing will be a major issue, but also the issue of climate okay, because well, of uh, Eamon Ryan's position as leader of the Green Party. In I the think, Hildegard, you might want to I come back I would like to come back in, thank you. And I don't want to rehash uh, the last election, but it is important to say that um, Owen Murphy, and I think if COVID-19 hadn't happened, I don't like any kind of revisionism, but it, numbers were going in the right direction in relation to housing policy policy in relation to, for example, he, he introduced the Rebuilding Ireland Home Scheme, which is an absolutely fantastic scheme to enable um, young people to own their own homes. There's 20,000 um, houses being built right. every year, which is but up But in fairness, 10, he did say himself today, he went in there to fix it. He said, I didn't fix it. He didn't, and I do but it was on, He did say it, that himself Yeah, he today. did. But it was, on the, it was on the road, I suppose, to... Um, to, to um, I suppose, recovery in relation to um, building houses. And if COVID-19 hadn't happened and the construction, unfortunately, hadn't been, um, I suppose, put on ice over the last year, we would have seen um, a large increase. But again, this government is now focused on that um, I suppose, during this pandemic and hopefully over the next weeks and months okay. we'll see that construction I just want to ask you very briefly, um, Paul, one thing he did talk about today extensively in his interview with Claire Byrne was that... You know, political life, particularly social media, become a real toxic place for politicians and that actually it's become so toxic now that it might be putting young people off going into politics. Do you agree with that? To, to be honest, I'm far more concerned about the 8,000 people who are homeless today. I, I think they have much bigger problems and I don't have anything personal against Owen Murphy, but I think his problems or my problems or anyone else in the Dáil's problems pale into insignificance with the crisis that face so many people in this country. But I and, and see, can that's... I just put a point to you, um, I saw it on your own Facebook page this evening where you said uh, Owen Murphy, you called him a failed housing minister, you also said his political career was not rising to heights that were equivalent to his own sense of entitlement. Is that part of the criticism that he's talking about, the personal criticism of TDs on social but, media? But, but I think it's fair to point out the fact that... He, I remember a thing he said that always struck me. He, he said the housing crisis, it's not about... It's not because of ideology, resources or money, yeah. right? And that was a big lie spun by the government, which was to say that the housing crisis was some sort of natural but disaster. focusing, this was on but, personal, but, but the, personal but, attacks but, on politicians. But the point being that the class of people that he and Fine Gael represent do well out of the housing crisis. One in four TDs from those okay. parties are landlords. These people got richer because of the housing crisis. He saw, instead of investing money in building social housing, he transferred All a right. billion euros every year into the pockets of private landlords through HAP uh, and RAS and other schemes. Hildegard? I think it's important to say that the number of social housing uh, that was created under Owen Murphy, it, it does uh, stand in, in relation to, I suppose, the, pre the previous decade. And it is very, um, I suppose, misrepresentative to say that the, the private landlords assisted government in relation to HAP and um, enabling those who are on the social housing list to be able to, right. to access we, we social housing. Okay. Single while, house from all that while, money. Goes while, into their while the social houses were being built and are being built, and he has a track record on that. But again, I'm not going to rehash it. And I just but, want but to say... But it's not rehashing because oh, okay. it's, it's right. It now, Daryl Bryan's pursuing the same policy. It's no We're different. It's going the same to thing move on, I suppose, to uh, the vaccine rollout and all of the changes um, that NIAC recommended today and that the government has agreed to implement. And joining us now uh, is Immuno.
virology expert at UCC, uh, Professor Liam Fanning. Uh, Professor, you're very welcome to the programme. As I said, there were a number of changes recommended by NIAC today that is going to be adopted by uh, this government, not least prioritising uh, women who are pregnant uh, to be vaccinated, the Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca now for the over 50s, and a single vaccine shot to those under 50 who aren't immunocompromised who have had COVID in the last six months. Any of those of any concern to you or do you agree with them all? So uh, any use of these vaccines is actually to be welcomed. So if you break it down into the, the groups that you just mentioned, certainly the one shot for those that have chaotic lifestyles and are homeless is actually very much to be welcomed. These are a target group that are hard to get at. And I think the one shot vaccine is the way to go to give them some protection. For individuals over 50, for the J&J, &J, uh, the one-shot vaccine has now been licensed. That, again, is to be welcomed. It'll probably speed up the vaccination of those over 50. Um, we've seen that the AstraZeneca vaccine has been used for those between 60 and 69. And collectively, the two of those decisions will mean that there'll be a large body of individuals at least receipt of their first vaccine within the next three to four weeks. And this is really to be welcomed. Um, the uh, one-shot vaccine for those who are uh, who have have had an RT-PCR positive for COVID-19 um, and then one shot of vaccine will give them almost 100% protection from serious disease um, and any fatalities. There were zero fatalities and also will protect them against many of the variants that are currently circulating. This evidence has been published for the last couple of months and I think it's extremely welcome um, that the government is considering uh, one vaccine for one vaccine shot for those individuals um, who have been uh, COVID RT-PCR positive. That's one shot of an RNA vaccine. And just to be clear, do you have to have had COVID within six months of getting the first vaccine shot? Is there clarity around that? Um, I, I think the reason for that is uh, more reflective of our understanding of the immunology um, and the response uh, of the immune system to COVID-19, that the markers that we understand with respect to memory and uh, our response to uh, COVID-19 is such that we know that it's embedded in those that have been infected for at least six months. So before that wanes to a point where you're starting from zero again or close to zero, um, we're giving a, effectively this one shot is like a booster um, to them. And then it brings their immunity um, to as much as we can achieve with these vaccines. Uh, speaking of the vaccines and the vaccine rollout, we've been told time and time again that, you know, the aim of this government, the promise of this government is that 82% of the adult population will have their first shot by the end of June. Are you confident, uh, Professor, that we can reach those targets? I'd say we'll get close to it, but maybe not reach that target. We've had so much so many changes um, to the vaccine delivery schedule and as we know, uh, NIAC changing the actual uh, use of these vaccines to decade specific uses, which is rather unusual. So um, I know that we're to receive 600,000 of the J&J vaccines by the end of second quarter and that we're receiving an extra 1.5 million of the Pfizer vaccines in the next couple of uh, weeks to months. So this is all positive, but uh, getting uh, nearly, uh, we have 2.3 million people between the ages of 24 and um, 64 and we have 300 thousand are odd between 18 and 24. That's really nearly 2.7 million people in total to receive vaccines. And if we haven't even reached the target of 200,000 vaccinations per week, I think we're currently at about 180... 
1,000 vaccines um, this week will be close on it. So we haven't reached that target yet of a quarter of a million per week, and we really need to get to that target of a quarter of a million per week if we're going to have any hope of getting close to, um, we'll say, the high 70s um, with respect to vaccinating, uh, giving adults one vaccine shot by the end of June. All right, let me just put uh, that point to the panel. Uh, Paul Murphy, I mean, originally it was a million vaccines for April, then it was 860,000, and then we hear uh, the health minister saying this evening it'll be north of 700,000. How confident are you that we're going to make this target? I'm not confident at all, and I wouldn't say most people in the country are, because I, I, I think the government played a very cynical game on the vaccinations. The government created false hope and false promises around the levels of vaccination that we'd achieved that were never going to be met in order to try to avoid the reality that their whole plan was a failure, that the decisions made in November and December had condemned us to months of lockdown, and they were trying to avoid that reality that we were going to be in lockdown for a long period of time in order to avoid a debate so about you... going for zero COVID, having elimination, as opposed to the kind of strategy that we ended up pursuing, which was a complete disaster. So the government saying this evening, the Taoiseach and the health minister saying this evening, that's full steam ahead, we can get back on track. You're not buying any of that. I mean, it's clear vaccinationing is, vaccinations are happening. That's, that's great. That's good. And the more vaccinations that happen, the safer everyone is across the country. But the promise that the government made were never going to be met and still aren't going to be met. The, the basic point in terms of who gets vaccinated it's, and which vaccinations, etc., is that it should be driven by the public health advice, by the doctors, etc., as opposed to by lobby groups or politicians or anything else. And I would make a point that it is worrying to see the government yet again deviate from the advice of Neffet, of Tony Holohan, when it comes to adding more countries onto the mandatory hotel quarantine list, where okay, he said you had to Germany, to the issue of the a whole number of European countries all, have ruled it out. Uh, Minister, the government knowingly made promises, I think Paul's saying, that they never were going to be able to keep. The government has consistently, and this is even since before Christmas, we always said supply will be the issue, not the administering of the vaccine. And I think it's very, really important to, to be factual here about the success of the rollout of this vaccine programme. 1.3 million jabs have gone. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. ...into people's arms to date. 400,000 people are walking around but Ireland today fully vaccinated. Have they we created have, false expectations? No, we've been very realistic by saying that this will be about supply. And we are on target so far. We can't say that, we cannot say 
with a hundred percent. Okay, I suppose, have to shake your head there definitive. We're not I, I, I just want to, I really want to reiterate because I've spoken to GPs, I have spoken to public health professionals on the front line who are rolling out these vaccines and like the positivity within these vaccination centres. As I said, 400,000 people fully right. vaccinated, just those in, in their 60s, a quarter of a million people in their 60s have registered for, through that online portal. Some of them have already received the vaccine, others will receive it over the next three weeks. So this is a positive story and we are in a completely different space than we were last year. And I, I don't think okay. we should be talking about zero COVID. We've had that debate and it has been debunked. All right, we're going debunked. to have to leave it we've been, there. We've I'm been afraid. in lockdown for like since since December you will with keep, the government strategy. You are that has, talking that was, about a strategy that, a that has been and absolutely proven not that it, can, it is not workable You had the Ireland, longest lockdown in all of Europe. You, have you had 1,000 people died in January. 1,000 people. Your strategy was a such a disaster. I don't want to talk over you, Paul, but Thanks. Philip Nolan from Neffet has said that a zero COVID strategy is not workable here in Ireland. So for you to rehash that again and to bring it when we know it's not workable. Because what we need now is, right, the, we, is a positive, proactive rollout of the vaccination programme, which is what government is doing. And that is what we all want. We want to right. get back to that normality and, and it's but through that rollout that that will happen. And thank you to our public health teams and our GPs all right, we're going to have to leave fantastic it. work on that. Uh, there, my thanks to Professor Liam Fanning and to TD Paul Murphy. Minister Nocton will be staying with us. And after the break, Fine Gael MEP Maria Walsh tells us why fatigue has been one of the biggest challenges to her long COVID-19 recovery. You're very welcome back. Now, extremely tired, fierce migraines, blurry eyes, just some of the symptoms our next guest is still suffering with, having recovered from COVID-19. Fine Gael MEP Maria Walsh joins us now via Skype. Uh, Maria, lovely to see you and thank you for taking the time to speak to us and sorry to hear that you're still suffering the after effects of COVID-19. If I can bring you back, I suppose, to your initial diagnosis to the first couple of weeks of your experience with the illness, would it be fair to say, you know, you wouldn't have seen it as being a severe case? I mean, you weren't hospitalised, you weren't in ICU. It was just, you know, COVID-19, not very pleasant, but you hope to get on with your life. Yeah, Kieran, and, and good evening to you. And thanks very much for, for having me on. I think it's so important that we talk about and we highlight um, symptoms, not just COVID, but the after effects of it. And, and as you rightly pointed out there, I wasn't hospitalised. Um, I experienced COVID like many others. I, I, uh, I got a positive test result when I was in Brussels at the end of October. Um, I was fortunate that I was able to quickly move into isolation on my own um, and did my two, almost three weeks a full isolation before returning back to Ireland. Um, and it really, I, I just carried on as if, uh, as if normal. Um, and it was only the effects and I guess the awareness that I didn't feel 100%, um, fatigue still hadn't left. Uh, I had, uh, as, as, as you rightly pointed out, fierce migraines, intense migraines and, and brain fog, muscle fatigue. Um, and it really amplified in January, and, and that's when I went to my my local GP here, who who then introduced me what to what long COVID looks like and is, and and really reassured me that I wasn't um, experiencing COVID yet again. It was simply the the after effects of having COVID. 
Um, and, and, and just bit by bit, week by week, I'm getting uh, more comfortable with it, getting my energies up, but it has taken quite a while. And it is, as you say, it's six months on. So how has it impacted day-to-day -day life for you? What changes are you having to make to the way you live? Yeah, certainly in early January, I would have just worked with my team quite closely in, in making sure that I was taking longer breaks uh, in between a lot of screen time. Now, as I said, week by week, it's getting a lot, uh, a lot easier and better, but still um, healthy food, regular exercise, trying to push through the fatigue as much as I can. Um, long walks, you know, nature, getting outside. Um, I'm fortunate that I, I live in uh, in a small village called Shrewl, just on the border between May and Galway. So fields and fresh air is a plenty. Um, and equally, just making sure that I'm stepping away from my screen as much as I can and not just mm -hmm. a quick walk around the desk, but actually, actually stepping outside. Right now, I mean, uh, in the last probably month, my, my calendar ha has, has only gotten busier. You know, just yesterday I would have, we're in plenary week, so voting week this week. So between voter, voting committee weeks, interventions, meeting at schools digitally, um, that hasn't changed. But I would feel more fatigued in the evening still um, and really feeling uh, frustration that I wouldn't have uh, the energy that I would in the evening time as what I prior to having COVID. Because for people, I think, who haven't experienced fatigue, it's a very particular thing, isn't it? It's not just low energy. It's not just feeling a little tired. It's an awful brain fog that comes with it as well. It is really detrimental to your quality of life. Absolutely, and 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 uh, and I love the way you phrase that, Kira, because it's it's really uh, fundamental that those who have experienced COVID or and, and more importantly, might be still experiencing the effects like that I'm I'm describing and we're chatting about here. It's it, it's important that you you speak with your GP, um, take you know regular checks, making sure that you are being cautious um, and and being mindful of yourself, but. It's, it's frustrating um, that, you know, the energy levels that you would have had, you know, even doing daily things like uh, a walk up to the farmyard for me it, it is a regular occurrence, but I would feel tired after it. Uh, mm. And that would have never happened before. Um, but I really look forward to hearing, I know you have a guest, Professor Lambert, later on, his impact and his insights in into how long he thinks it will go on for and how, what other things I need to do uh, in order to make it easier. And when you think of the possibility Marie, that you may have to live with this for a little bit longer or perhaps long term. What impact does that have on your mental health, on your outlook? Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a glass half full kind of gal, so I'm, I'm always positive and, and I have a great team and, and family support around me. So um, the busyness of the day job hasn't changed. Uh, it's just really listening to my body. And I, I, and I guess in many ways, in terms of my mental health, reassuring myself that if I do feel extremely fatigued after my my busy day, that it's perfectly okay. Um, that taking maybe an extra hour in the morning um, to eat a proper uh, breakfast, um, to make sure that I'm hydrated well and to get outside is, is the, following the basic things is as simplistic as we can make them and, and I need to do that. Um, what has been 
really eye-opening in, in the last coming weeks um, since speaking with Sheila Wayman from the Times on, on that long COVID piece is, is the increase of under 40 so premenopausal women showing more and more signs that long COVID um, is affecting them more than, than anybody else. And, and I think that was a real wake-up call that as women, we have to make sure we're championing and minding each other um, and equally just always directing uh, everyone to to their to their local GP and that they're getting the best information that is that is out there. Uh, before I let you go, uh, Maria, I just want to ask you about the Rose of Tralee because I saw the <laughs> host, who of course you know, Dahi O'Shea, saying he's really hopeful it'll come back uh, later in the summer in some form. Are you hopeful that we'll see a Rose of Tralee this year? Listen, as an international Rose of Tralee, the one that uh, gifted me the podium that, that I very kindly stand on even now, um, I would hope it comes back. But I guess uh, as, as the international Rose and as someone who really sees the uh, interconnecting uh, passion and grow that the festival brings to the town of Tralee and Kerry as a whole from across our diaspora. I hope we we do it well, and I and I'm no doubt the organisers will will follow all the health and safety guidelines. I would just I would just feel that if 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 we were going ahead with you know it'd be great if we're doing it maybe next year when all the international uh, roses can also join. You know I was a Philly rose. Uh, so I'm obviously a little bit biased to being able to come in and experience the festival as a whole. But ultimately, what I think is really important, um, and not just seeing the festival come back, but is our support, our funding and our awareness to Indigenous uh, festivals like the Rosa Tralee, um, promoting not just international travel, but domestic travel, and hopefully uh, getting a lot more coverage for the future Rosa Tralee uh, and getting a lot more applicants in roses and escorts. Uh, Maria, thank you for taking the time uh, to speak to us this evening and good wishes for better health in the future. Thank you, Keir. Now, Minister Norton is still with us and we're also joined by Professor Jack Lambert from the UCD School of Medicine. Professor, you're very welcome to the programme. You obviously run um, a long COVID clinic and I'm wondering what you're seeing there. Is it reflective of you know, the symptoms that Maria Walsh is describing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, this, this is a new virus. So, so how long does long COVID last? We don't know. Um, but we do have now patients who were sick back from March last year, and I'm seeing them in April, so 13 months later, and they still have long COVID. We keep on saying, you'll get better, you'll get better. And most people do. But there's a small percentage of people that even a year plus one month after being infected in the first wave, they're still not well. And when you say they're still not well, how is it affecting their life? What symptoms are they living with, by and large? Well, some of the symptoms that were de described before, you know, I, I think we think of COVID only affecting the lungs, but it affects the brains as well. A third of people, when they're in the hospital with COVID, have inflammation of the brain, like almost a viral meningitis. And after that infection is gone, I think, I think there's still residual brain inflammation. So they're presenting with, they're continuing to have brain fog, exhaustion, you know, they, they try to do something, they get extreme exhaust and weakness, you know, all, all of these kind of symptoms, ongoing headaches, muscle aches, joint aches. And when they try to do anything, for example, marathon runners previously, when they just try to jog for a few miles, they, they crash, 
and then they can't get out of bed the next day. So, so, so there's something there's something that's not gone back to normal in their metabolism, in their brain. There's some ongoing inflammation that's just that we're still trying them. to figure out. How so many people do you reckon have been affected by this? Right. Well, we know that if you look at the statistics, at least 350,000 people got COVID. Probably more than that, and I would say up to one percent. So that's one. That's 3,500 people. You know months, six months, 12 months after their COVID who are still not right. Uh, and that's a significant burden, you know, of, of disease that we have to figure out and figure out how to deal with. Has this government come to terms with the fact that there may be three and a half thousand people still living with the after effects of COVID-19? Do they have a plan in place to try and help these people? I know that the, the HSC are um, engaging with people who have long COVID and I suppose as as uh, Professor has said here that this is I suppose a, a new disease there's emerging data coming and there will be and I think there's going to need to be long-term observational studies as well that's going to feed into public health policy but I don't think there's anybody who's expert at the moment in in relation to COVID-19 anywhere in the world but we'll have to continue to monitor the data that comes in and I suppose people who have who, who do have COVID and are engaging with their GPs or with their hospital um, doctors as was that data then needs to feed into public um, health and that's what I know work that will be underway. Um, you obviously have your own COVID clinic. Um, are they to be found in you know hospitals right around the country or is it sort of a bit of a post-COVID lottery? If you're in Dublin, you know, you can go into Professor right. Jack Lambert. Right. If you're in Leitrim or Longford, perhaps you're a bit more lost. I think so. I think it's a bit patchy. I think I think it's been there's been clinics set up, some of them just for research, some of them will provide care. Some some centres, if they don't have somebody interested in the, in the area, don't have set up a clinic. But while I think it's important that GPs have to be involved, I mean, it's actually, it, it's challenging even for specialists because this is a new, a new disease. So I do think we need to put more resources and more thought into how we set up these centres I've had experience with another disease, you know, chronic Lyme disease, people who are sick even after getting treated for Lyme disease. And I've tried to use that experience to kind of, you know, take a look at these patients, manage these patients, support these patients. But we've not put resources into chronic Lyme. Uh, there's a lot of similarities. We need to put more resources into people who are have this post-infectious, you know, inflammatory autoimmune disease that's, that's really limiting them getting back to getting a normal life. So when we've had experiences with, you know, the after effects of a disease, for example, like Lyme disease in the past, what you're saying, Professor, is we haven't actually managed to put the right health supports in place for those who are suffering. No, I don't think we have. And what happens is people end up going, you know, if you've got brain problems, you see a neurologist. If you've got joint problems, you see a rheumatologist. People are shopping around from one specialist to another. And it's actually... It's, it's not supportive of the patient and it's actually a huge waste, you know, a, it's, it's, a, it's a waste of resources for people to be doing that. I think we do have to think about how we can manage patients with persistent symptoms post-infection, whether it's Lyme or COVID or the next virus that comes along. Because are there things you can do for these patients when they come to you, when they do see somebody who is a specialist in the area and who does have a clinic? Yeah, well, I think there is, but, but unfortunately, most of the things that we're doing are kind of untested and unproven, so, so that really is a challenge. So I think a lot of the, the, the work that needs to be done needs to be done in a supervised kind of research supportive environment so we can 
measure whether some of the things that we're doing work or not. Um, some of the research into this, uh, Minister, would say, you know, a lot of these people have had to quit their jobs, simply, you know, are too fatigued to return to work. And I'm wondering what supports are there for those people long term in terms of, you know, pandemic unemployment payments or medical cards or carers or whatever it is that they need. What's there? Yeah, I, I suppose, just, just to follow on from that, I think these are the learnings that we're going to have to... There's, there's many learnings from COVID-19 within the health system itself and every sector. And I think this is going to be part of it that uh, I suppose we're preparing now for any future, I suppose, pandemics as well and viruses and supports will have to be put in place. And our health system, and we know the impacts and waiting lists now due to COVID-19. So all of this will have to be part of our reassessment now coming out of COVID-19 over the next few weeks and months. And healthcare is going to play a, a really crucial role in that as well. So we have huge public health expertise within the within the country. So it's to tap into that, into the research and to apply it then in All real right. life. Thank you. We're going to have to leave it there. But my thanks to Minister Naughton and Professor Jack Lambert for joining me this evening. And after the break, end of an era for Joe Walsh Tours as the company ceases trading after 60 years in business. Consumer journalist Sinead Ryan gives her reaction. You're very welcome back. Now with business and employers group IBEX seeking a clear roadmap for the reopening of the economy. I am joined in studio by broadcaster and journalist Sinead Ryan and via Skype this evening by IBEX CEO Danny McCoy. Danny, uh, we're going to start with you because we know there's going to be this big announcement on Thursday. We'll find out what's going to reopen and probably when uh, right throughout May. But then a lot of speculation about what's going to happen in June and July. And I know you have written to the Taoiseach specifically about May and you want all construction, all non-essential retail and all personal services fully reopened from next Tuesday. Am I right? Correct. Yeah. And so also, you know, Kira, the, in addition to um, these are industries that have been now suppressed for the best part of uh, five months since before Christmas. So when you look at the situation um, with the virus, but also the vaccination rollout, it's appropriate to start to gradually um, introduce mm -hmm. these businesses, but we also need clarity for the rest of the community as well. Uh, everybody needs to see themselves in the roadmap on Thursday with the type of triggers and milestones that they can assure to get back. And that includes office workers as well, because we're seeing significant distress beginning to emerge in the cultures of business and people are struggling uh, in places, particularly the young, uh, from working from home. Uh, but as you say yourself there, Danny, it needs to be gradual. You've just said that. And I think the government has indicated that it will be a phased reopening for many of those businesses throughout May. Is, is that not good enough? No, they need to be specific about it. You know, saying uh, the summer will be outdoors um, doesn't even help the hospitality sector make plans. And it certainly doesn't help um, any other businesses as well. So there needs to be very specific timelines and the triggers. And so vaccination is the big changed environment from when the roadmap was put together previously. So are we going to stay in level five? When do we go to level four? What will be permitted there? So we see even things like, um, you know, Leinster were proposing a rugby game with 2,000 people using antigen testing, a pilot scheme mm. that, you know, can't go ahead because it's level five. So, so we need a bit more nuance for people on Thursday. Everybody needs to see themselves in that roadmap. 
Um, but Danny, we know and we've heard from time and time again that, you know, Neffet are going to say we should be optimistic, but cautiously optimistic. Uh, the government's saying, look, we still can't make firm promises because we don't have guaranteed supplies and there's nothing worse than giving people a date and then saying, uh uh, sorry, we, you know, we just won't be able to make that. But their hands are still tied. That may be fine in terms of, of society, and that's up for households to judge that. But it's a different proposition for businesses whose livelihoods and whose business's very existence um, actually matter. Uh, we, you know, you're going to talk about uh, JWT, I'm sure. Uh, we can't be guaranteed what supply side will be available. We know demand will be there. We know that from households. We've seen every time the reopening comes. But we can't be certain that the businesses will actually exist. And so they need to have some indication as to what will be the triggers for getting them back. And so right. far, you know, saying that the outdoors will, summer will be outdoors isn't a plan. All right, we'll leave it there. Danny McCoy from IBEC, uh, thank you for taking the time to speak to us this evening. Sinead Ryan, that is one of the fears, isn't it, when we saw JWT, Joe Walsh Tours, um, saying that they're going to close today, the closure of 10 businesses, that this is the start of something, particularly within the tourism industry, that businesses quite simply just cannot hold on any longer. Uh, it's been very sad news. There's no doubt about it. I mean, this was one of the main street stalwarts for the last 60 years. Everybody's been on a, well, every of my age has been on a JWT <laughs> holiday at yeah, one time or too. another. And of course, one of the things they specialised in, they had 10 brands, but among them were uh, school trips, pilgrimages, um, uh, rugby and football uh, kind of membership things. And as a result, you know, they are the least likely to come back now in any short order. And indeed, they were the ones most affected. So and one it... of the things, I suppose, Sinead, just yeah. before we move on to, I suppose, how this could affect consumers, is that um, people will worry, I suppose, that this is part of, you know, an overall decimation of the travel industry. Because Joe Walsh, as far as we're aware, was a very viable business prior to this pandemic? Yeah, look, there are going to be lots of businesses in lots of industries, but, but absolutely mainly the travel industry and hospitality who are going to now have to regroup uh, and find out if they can reopen, if there is business there. Are people willing to travel even when we're kind of moving along the vaccination process? And I've no doubt, unfortunately, that travel agents are going to be among the casualties here. I mean, this is a huge operator. Uh, you know, this isn't some Mickey Mouse outfit at the end of a road. Um, so if they're having difficulty, and remember, a lot of travel agents were already vying with the internet, with the direct selling of flights yeah. up to now. Um, so it, it is it is a difficult one. That what's said, interesting about this business too is that they did have business interruption insurance, which most businesses will have, and they've said that still wasn't enough to sustain them. Yeah, they couldn't come to an agreement, they said in their press release today, with the insurers in terms of that. But I, I just would, as a little bit of hope, I would like to think that maybe customers might be a little bit more cautious now about booking holidays and trips and may want to go through a travel agent from here on in and that would be certainly a nice thing to see. Uh, let's talk about the customers yeah. um, at the moment because of the travel restrictions. Thankfully nobody is stranded abroad but yeah. those who may have paid deposits or you know booked for perhaps mm. later this summer or maybe even next year yeah. what kind of protections are there for them? Uh, to be in, in one sense Kira, the problem and the solution are the same thing because if it was any other year at the end of April, you'd be looking at chaos, mm. flights grounded and people trying to get home and all that. That isn't the case here now. There may be people who have booked holidays, maybe with the crossed fingers for later in the year or next year, okay? And there may be people who had booked holidays and then bumped it forward. Uh, so I, there's two types of groups and neither need worry immediately, okay? The first is if you've already uh, booked a holiday and had to cancel it because of COVID. Over the last 12 over months. Over the last 12 months. You're entitled under the government 
Ireland's um, refund scheme, credit note refund scheme, you would have got your credit note from Joe Walsh Tours and you're holding on to it, waiting to cash that in, as it were, or reuse it. Uh, now, that won't be happening now, but you will be covered under the Commission for Aviation Regulation, who, who looks after this, the industry body. So that's guaranteed for yeah, those people? Yeah, you, you should get that back. Now, Aviation Regulation, the website for that is aviationreg.ie. They have a form that they've now put up on their website, as does JWT, which you fill in and it'll show you what process you need to, to follow. That has to be done within 60 days of today. Otherwise it's gone? Well, it makes it much more difficult. Okay, okay? So they, they don't have to honour it. So, so the best get on that straight away. There is a helpline as well. You can look that up and they, they'll talk to you about that. Uh, now, the other people would be people who have booked uh, and paid but haven't taken their holiday. They should also get a refund because this is a, a bonded uh, travel agent. They are a very good company or where, uh, and you will probably get a refund on that. The people I would worry about are maybe people who have, cr who have um, uh, gift vouchers or something like that so they don't actually have a, a holiday or a trip purchased they might be in trouble and what can those people do do they just contact jw tours and Con try and negotiate with them contact them um, at this stage if if they if they've organized liquidators at this stage that'll be who you'll be dealing with um i would in the first instance contact uh, the helpline that they've put out on, on their website tonight. Uh, I would contact the Commission for Aviation Regulation if you have a holiday trip, booking, anything that you've actually arranged with this company or any one of the 10 companies associated with it. They will guide you and tell you uh, what to do with this. I don't anticipate too many people being in trouble. There's always the charge back. If you booked something and you still can't get a refund, uh, get it back through your bank uh, through okay. your, your credit card system uh, on that, uh, okay. or, or maybe your holiday insurance. So sad news for JWT, but there is some protection yeah. there for consumers who might be worried this evening. Correct, and there's lots and lots of strong consumer law in this area. So Sinead. hopefully most people will be lo looked after. Sinead Ryan, as always, thank you uh, for your time. That's all we have time for this evening. My thanks to Sinead Ryan and IBEX, Danny McCoy and all of my guests. And just before we go, we're happy to clarify that the people before Profit TD, Paul Murphy, didn't call former uh, Fine Gael TD, Owen Murphy, in titled on his own Facebook page and we are happy to clarify that. Matt Cooper will be here tomorrow night at 10pm. Until then, good night and do stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.